0: Hello and welcome back to Banjo Strings and Drinking Courts, How America Culture Came to Be, the podcast at the Frontier Culture Museum of Virginia. I'm Alex.
1: And I'm Rachel. Today's topic, in honor of Valentine's Day, is romance and courting through the ages. Our guests today will cover a broad range from specific courting techniques to attracting a mate to superstitions about love and marriage.
0: To start us off, let us go into a little historical background of Valentine's Day. Why is February, arguably one of the dreariest times of the year, a time for romance? It all starts with the feast day of St. Valentine, which St. Valentine is still somewhat in doubt, as quite a few martyrs of the same name were listed as having a feast day on February 14th. There is a somewhat apocryphal uh, story that often tells of a 3rd century Roman priest who defied Claudius II's degree against marriage in times of warfare, which was often He performed marriages in secret and was put to death when found out. The other version is of a martyr sentence for helping Christians. He converted many, even his jailer's family, and sent messages from prison asking to remember your Valentine. Do we actually know the true history? No. But like with many Christian holidays, there did happen to be a Roman holiday, Lupecalia, celebrated on February 14th through the 15th. Young men would draw lots on the evening of the 14th to name their female partners the following festivals. The festivals largely centered on fertility of fields, animals, and young people. The idea of drawing lots to pick your sweetheart continued throughout Europe into the 17th century. In England, of course, the Puritans banned the practice during the Civil War, but Charles II revived the tradition after the Restoration. Once paired, Valentines received often expensive gifts from their paramours. Samuel Pepys, the diarist, complained about the expense of Valentine gifts. It was common to give gloves, silk stockings, or garters, the latter being the more scandalous for being an item of apparel kept under one's petticoats, as covered in this historic verse. Blush not, my fair, at what I send, tis found a present from a friend. These garters made of silk and twine were fancied by your Valentine. This practice continued in the colonies, carried by German and English colonists. Although the gifts were more often homemade and inexpensive and usually included a first drafted by the suitor, or at least were attributed to him, they eventually turned into the practice of our paper valentines and led to a boom in business of commercial valentines in the mid-19th century.
1: Romance, of course, isn't limited to Valentine's Day. Courting is a year-round activity. And just how people regarded courting couples changed through time. Chaperoning and courting traditions sometimes went to extremes.
2: Sally, you found some very interesting trends about past attitudes surrounding appropriateness in courting. What does it mean to be a chaperone, historically? A chaperone is a person who, for propriety's sake, accompanies an unmarried girl in public. The word was used in the 18th and 19th century, and the girl's mother was commonly the chaperone. If she couldn't do it, another woman well known to the family was chosen. Usually she was an older, well-respected married woman or an older unmarried or widowed woman who was beyond childbearing age. According to an ordinary day in the life of a Victorian chaperone, the chaperone made sure no improper conduct occurred during courtship. Let's quickly define courtship. It's a period of development towards an intimate relationship wherein a couple gets to know each other and decide if there will be an engagement followed by marriage. The chaperone's responsibilities include making sure the young lady never went anywhere alone with a gentleman and never late at night. She never received a man if home alone. She never walked alone. She could, of course, walk with a gentleman if they were at a certain point in their courtship. The chaperone assured that they walked apart, not having any physical contact. Lastly, the chaperone saw to it that the young lady did not ride in a closed carriage with a gentleman, not her relative. The custom in the 19th century for some women in the northern U.S. and among wealthy southern families was to let daughters be alone with male visitors. Of course, there are always exceptions to the rules. The chaperone sounds like the courting policewoman. What were women and men looking for when courting? In the 1600s, men were looking for modesty, a quiet manner, and religious devotion, as well as a careful housekeeper who was both virtuous and frugal. Men also looked for wealth, status, reputation, and personal attraction. Women looked for an honorable husband. For the fashionable, at the end of the 17th century, courtship was like a game. Men joked of their wooing like a military campaign. At this time, men and women were beginning to marry for love, and marriages were not always arranged by parents for status or financial gain. In the 18th century, American girls were known to have somewhat of an independent streak. These people immigrating to the frontier brought with them the idea of the active woman, specifically a woman who was more involved with the family business, especially with men being gone governing and defending the frontier. In June of 1778, at the Battle of Monmouth, Molly Pitcher, took over her fallen husband's gun and fired a few rounds at the Redcoats. She was really named Mary Ludwig Hayes, a 21-year-old farm girl from Carlisle, Pennsylvania, who was also a camp follower. Mary was tough, and she had the necessary skill and gumption to meet the challenge of those few hours which made her immortal. After the American Revolution, women encountered more restrictions on activities outside the home. Moving on to the 19th century, a model Victorian woman was long-suffering and a gentlewoman whose virtues bordered on the angelic. Another definition of the ideal woman for this time period states that women should be sweet, innocent, cheerful, sensible, good-natured, beautiful, and affectionate. All these qualities lead to domestic happiness from the perspective of the 19th century man. On the flip side... The 19th century woman wanted a man free from a host of flaws. For example, she desired a husband who did not praise another woman who possessed a characteristic his own wife lacked, as well as a husband who was not fond of company at home or abroad, and finally, a husband who never spoke harshly to his own wife. In discussing ideal mates at this time period, women wanted a man who was kind, On to courting, which actually included a wide variety of practices. It could begin with a casual meeting at a ball, a fair, or other festivities. Then leading to small group gatherings with frequent and regular meetings. Proceeding on to close familiarity and meeting as a couple in the parlor. It was believed women could learn through conversation if a man offered mutual love, respect, and companionship. Hmm. Courtship was an important time for women to use their best judgment. One woman from the southern U.S. in the 19th century commented that being a belle gave her a source of power that most southern women enjoyed only during courtship. Romantic love was the most important factor in a marriage choice. Parents were less likely to arrange marriages, though at times they didn't give their blessing on a match. Still, we can conclude that the parent's role was reduced in mate selection, suggesting that women had much more freedom in important decisions in their lives. Now, on to a specific type of courtship, bundling. What is bundling? Bundling means a woman and a man who are courting occupy the same bed while clothed. It is often referred to as bed courtship. The very first bundling recorded was between Ruth and Boaz in the Bible. On a side note, bundling was also practiced by strangers because of a shortage of beds. A candle in the window was a sign indicating a bed was available for a weary traveler. With bundling, the pair wrap up in several layers of bed clothing, or at least one of them is sewn into a cloth bag. A bundling board may also run the length of the bed to separate the pair, or possibly a bolster or a pillow could be placed between the couple. Our listeners probably remember seeing The Patriot. There is a scene in the movie depicting bundling between a courting couple. Bundling has its origins in Wales, England, Scotland, Ireland, Germany, and Dutch Holland. The practice continued in America. The parsimony of the people may have led to the beginning of bundling. Imagine how unpleasant it would be for a courting couple to sit together in the colder part of the year without a fire or candles. It seems sensible for a young man traveling a far distance, like 10 miles or more, just to see his sweetheart, that he should be permitted to enjoy a harmless chit-chat with her in bed, and then nod off for a good night of sleep. Saturday and Sunday nights were principal evenings for bundling. Bundling was a test of sorts for the courting couple. They understood that innocent endearments should not be exceeded. The parents of the fair lady sanctioned bundling by often tucking in the young couple. The Puritans thought bundling was certainly innocent, virtuous, and prudent, or they would not have permitted it to prevail among their offspring. The freedom was seldom abused, or so one would think.
0: The enduring idea of romance, particularly in escapist romantic novels and plays, has a long history. Michaela is here to tell us more about the development of the sentimental novel.
3: It is a truth universally acknowledged that human beings crave form of escapism. Whether that comes in the form of literature, art, music, or even film, we enjoy skipping the worst parts of our own lives and escaping into a world of fantasy, particularly romance. The romance novel, for example, is queen of literary genres. Romance novels is the second most popular genre after the mystery thriller, and the sales of romance novels outgrosses any genre, where on average American publishing companies make about $1.44 billion per year. The modern romance novel commonly follows the same formula. Two characters and a romantic entanglement filled with passion idealism, and often steamy, sexualized tension. But who came up with the romantic novel, and when? The term romance in literary history is thrown around quite a bit. One may hear the term romance and conjure the romanticism movement of the 19th century. The romantics, however, should not be entirely confused with romance. Historically speaking, the term romance, epic, and novel have been interchangeably used. The first signs of our more familiar understanding of blushing romances can be found in the medieval period. Known as chivalric romances, these stories often focused on courtly manners, love, usually unrequited love, sweeping epics, knights in shining armor, damsels in distress, dragons, you get the picture. The chivalric romances remained popular for several centuries after the medieval period, These tales were, at times, interspersed with scathing satire, critical responses on lack of realism, and body humor. The romantic tenets of courtly manners and valiant characters saw a second renaissance in the late 17th century with the French heroic romances. Heroic romances were distinguished by gallant and undaunted heroes with unwavering loyalty to their loved ones. While these books were primarily meant for entertainment, There was an undertone of honor and morality meant to inspire younger, more impressionable audiences. So what was the first true romance novel? We're still not quite to the true romance novel. Moving into the 18th century, we saw the advent of a fresh genre, the sentimental novel. The first accredited sentimental novel, Pamela or Virtue Rewarded, was published in 1740 by writer and printer Samuel Richardson. Pamela features a 15-year-old maidservant who is employed by a Mr. B, a wealthy landowner. Mr. B makes several dubious advances towards Pamela. They eventually marry after he reforms his questionable character. Today, the novel sparks heated debates on feminism, sexual assault, and consent, but at the time of its publication, the novel was an overnight sensation. An excerpt appeared in 1777 outlining the novel's reception. The blacksmith of the village had got hold of Richardson's novel of Pamela or Virtue Rewarded and used it to read aloud in the long summer evenings, seated on his anvil, and never failed to have a large and attentive audience. At length, when the happy turn of the fortune arrived, which brings the hero and heroine together and sets them living long and happily, The congregation were so delighted as to raise a great shout, and procuring the church keys actually set the parish bells ringing. Richardson certainly wasn't the only author to imagine the rakish man reformed by a lower-class yet virtuous female with lax copyright laws. Several publications preceded and succeeded Pamela with several themes and titles, including virtue Rewarded or the Irish Princess in 1693 and Memoirs of Lady H, the Celebrated Pamela in 1741. So when does the sentimental novel fall out of favor? The sentimental novel remained a staple bestseller genre for several years, but the narrative shifted because of one remarkable woman, Jane Austen. Austen's novels of realistic social commentary feature biting irony, comedic characters, and skeptical tone. Her novels poke holes in the sentimental novel logic, yet Austen still relied on romance and marriage to complete her stories. Pride and Prejudice, considered one of the most popular romance novels of all time, features a sharp-tongued Elizabeth Bennet, falling slowly in love with the rich but aloof Mr. Darcy all under the umbrella of societal pressures to marry. Jane Austen completely bewitched audiences across the globe, making her one of the most memorable authors of all time.
1: I hear, though, that not everyone likes Jane Austen.
3: Sacrilege. Indeed. The Bronte sisters, Anne, Charlotte, and Emily, spoke ill of Jane Austen's style. Charlotte, in particular, writes a letter about Austen. The passions are perfectly unknown to her. Hmm. The Bronte sisters' novels are very unlike Austen's blistering realism. Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte, The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte, and Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte all feature moody and broody men, alongside strong-minded female protagonists. High passions, gloomy settings, and intriguing mysteries align these novels in a new subgenre of romance, the Gothic novel. Several publications later follow suit, changing the sentimental novel genre, including Sir Walter Scott's rebirth of the historic chivalric romances like Ivanhoe, the coming of age novels like Little Women by Louisa May Alcott, and cynical perceptions on the sentimental novel like. Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert. As time marches on, our romance novel flourishes with the varying genres and much-needed escapism from society. What about the 20th and 21st centuries? The early 20th century features novels such as The Black Moth in 1921 and Gone with the Wind in 1936. Also in the 1930s, many novels like Jane Eyre and Pride and Prejudice received facelifts. The new covers presented white women in large ball gowns and idyllic scenery. Publishing companies began targeting housewives as the main consumers of the mass-market romance with more daring covers and titles. In 1970, with the second wave of feminism in tow, the first accredited bodice ripper, The Flame and the Flower, was published. The novel highlights audacious, explicit scenes and steamy language. In the 21st century, the romance novel expands its subject manner with more diverse characters, genre, and storylines. Today, we see romance novels adapted into film and TV shows such as Outlander and new Netflix series Bridgerton. Despite the change of time, I do believe the romance novel, with its enduring adaptability, is here to stay.
0: Thanks, Michaela. That actually dovetails nicely into our next topic, virtual dating in the past. As quoted in a 2009 volume of Latham's Quarterly, the 1810 novel, The Marquis of O begins with a newspaper ad from a lady of unbloodish reputation that she had without knowledge of the cause come to find herself in a certain situation, that she would like the father of the child she was expecting to disclose his identity to her and that she was resolved Out of consideration for her family to marry him. Obviously this isn't a typical type of newspaper ad, indeed quite the opposite of what most are hoping for, but there you have it.
1: We've all heard both successes and horror stories of dating apps, or if you're of a certain age, lonely heart ads. But there was an even earlier version, the mail order bride. Most people are familiar with the 19th century mail order bride arriving to the wild west by stagecoach, but there were earlier versions the Jamestown settlement was truly the first colonial recipient of women who answered the call for traveling to a new life with an unknown man. This has recently been in the public eye, thanks to PBS's historical drama Jamestown. In 1619, 90 women boarded a ship bound for Jamestown on the promise of making a better life with land in the new world. The initiative was aimed at stopping the practice of young men coming to the colony, staying long enough to make their fortunes, and then heading back to England to settle down. Transient inhabitants was a surefire way to destabilize the settlement. Worse in the colonial government's eyes were the men who found brides in the neighboring Indian villages. Why would a woman take a chance on such a dangerous venture? Life certainly wasn't a picnic in the new world, but the average woman didn't have it all that great in England either. Working class conditions were harsh and left little time and money for establishing a household. In fact, it was typical to not get married until much later in life than in upper-class families with apprenticeships needing to be finished before searching for a wife. There was little room for social advancement or even the ability to ever own land, given the male-oriented property law. In contrast, the new world was apparently a never-ending source of wealth. The need for women was so great that it was nearly a given that a bride could choose a wealthy man for a more comfortable life. And the pot was sweetened. The Virginia company placed ads promising transportation, clothing, household goods, and land upon arrival for any woman capable of making the trip. The company even provided room and board as the women were wooed. Of course, it didn't come for free, The lucky husband was required to pay back the Virginia Company, 120 to later 150 pounds of good leaf tobacco, or the equivalent to $5,000 today. Hence why these women were eventually called tobacco wives. But given the hazards of life in the colonies, the company didn't stop there. It even provided widows with more rights regarding inheritance than available in England. The rights of women were even set into precedence in court cases, where the court sided with the woman even if clearly in the wrong regarding marital efforts, in an attempt to keep Virginia an attractive choice for women.
0: These advertisements, coming from an established company and offering essentially a service, weren't really cause for social stigma. However, when the first known personal ad in a newspaper was placed by gasp, a lady in 1727 in Manchester, England, scandal abounded. The lady in question was even reprimanded to an asylum the public nature of essentially offering oneself in an advertisement as through a side of beef or a bolt of cloth was just not done.
1: Running ads for marital bliss continued all the way through the 19th century and well into the late 20th century, before the aforementioned dating apps enticed people to swipe right. Just like today, it seems the more personality you displayed, the better the response. In 1865, for example, a young man listed, quote, an opportunity for a spinster. A young man in Aristook County, Maine, advertising for a wife, speaks of himself as follows. I am 18 years old, have a good set of teeth, and believe in Andy Johnson, the Star Spangled Banner, and the Fourth of July. I have taken up a state lot, cleared up 18 acres last year, and seeded 10 of it down. My buckwheat looks first-rate, and the oats and potatoes are bully. I have got nine sheep, a two-year-old bull, and two heifers, besides a house and a barn. I want to get married. I want to buy bread and butter, hoop skirts, and waterfalls for some person of the female persuasion during life. That's what's the matter with me but I don't know how to do it, End quote. That's quite the resume, especially in these days of character limits. But in my opinion, the worst part of looking back at these ads is that we can never know if these lonely hearts found happiness. The anonymity was critical as the ads betrayed a certain longing loneliness that wasn't able to be fulfilled by more traditional means of courting. While not entirely socially unacceptable, the personal columns and papers were widely read as a source of entertainment. Think Bridgerton and Lady Whistledown and as a source for police questioning, as these ads opened the field to LGBTQ individuals to arrange a meeting with a lover in a time when they faced prison or worse. Much like commentating over profiles today, the public loved pouring over the ads and critiquing and commenting. It wasn't necessarily maliciously done, but certainly salaciously done, and quite the risk for individuals if they were found out. Ladies in particular were harshly judged for not being married by a certain age. Once one was on the shelf, or spinster, typically past 21 or later 25 years of age by the 18th century, society viewed one with a sort of pity. There's even a preserved 19th century Valentine's verse deriding the spinster. "'Tis all in vain your simpering looks, you never can incline, with all your bustles, stays, and curls, to find a valentine." With that much social pressure, one certainly wouldn't want neighbors and connections to know you turned to essentially the last resort for finding a mate. On the other hand, you definitely didn't want to be known if you were the author of such an ad as this one from the Maryland Gazette in 1801. Wanted. A wife. A generous offer will be made. Proposals directed to XZ and left with the printers will be duly attended to. Nota bene. None need apply, but such as can come well-recommended.
0: Ouch. Well, that did say marriage was a business, and that certainly reads like a contract. Now, for those not willing to leave fate to chance, there were quite a few superstitions, traditions, and charms throughout history meant to entice your sweetheart or help pin down your soulmate. Spring is, of course, the most auspicious time of year to find a mate, echoing early pagan fertility rites. May Day is one of the more enduring traditions in most of Europe that had various relationships with the idea of court and depended on where you were. Germany, for example, in the feudal period, exerted control on the ability of young men to marry. With restricted land rights, parents wanted to make sure the most advantageous matches were made, especially keeping out poachers from neighborhood villages. To do this end, Avon May Day was celebrated by an auction of marriageable women, with the winner staking a claim if he danced with his partner.
1: In Ireland, on the other hand, romance was strongly tied to Autumn and the Harvest. Braided straw made into love knots were exchanged between couples or soon-to-be couples.
0: Other traditions include the time of year of the wedding, the day of the week, even the color of the wedding dress. A rhyme from 1876 stated, Monday for wealth, Tuesday for health, Wednesday the best of all, Thursday for crosses, Friday for losses, Saturday no luck at all.
1: As for the month to be married, traditions varied regionally, but this rhyme summarizes most of European thought about marriage months. Marry and lent, live to repent. Married when the year is new, he'll be loving, kind, and true. When February birds do mate, you wed nor dread your fate. If you wed when March winds blow, joy and sorrow both you'll know. Marry in April when you can, joy for maiden and for man. Marry in the month of May, and you'll surely rule the day. Marry when June roses grow, over land and sea you'll go. Those who in July do wed must labor for their daily bread. Whoever wed in August be, many a change is sure to see marry in September's shrine, your living will be rich and fine. If in October you do marry, love will come, but riches tarry. If you wed in bleak November, only joys will come, remember. When December snows fall fast, marry and true love will last.
0: And lastly, the color the bride wore was also thought to be auspicious. For example, married in white, you have chosen right. Married in gray, you will go far away. Married in black, you will wish yourself back. Married in red, and you will wish yourself dead. Married in green, ashamed to be seen. Married in blue, you will always be true. Married in pearl, you will live in a world. Married in yellow, ashamed of your fellow. Married in brown, you will live in town. Married in pink, your spirit will sink. Irish brides often chose blue, and everyone knows the Victorian tradition of something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. Not forgotten, the sixpence in the shoe.
1: Also in Ireland is one of the more well-known traditions, the leap year fair, where women, thanks to St. Bridget, are finally allowed to propose to the lad they have their eye on. Traditionally, if the man refused, he owed the lady a gown or a new pair of gloves for every month of the year. Economically, it was sometimes more sound to get married.
0: On a more serious note, enslaved people in the United States also had their own traditions regarding courtship and marriage, even if those families were often torn apart by the decisions of white men. These traditions existed where they could, as memoirs often tell of being ordered to marry a complete stranger, possibly from a neighboring farm, in a white man's ceremony, or even just being told two people were now married. But where they had the opportunity, enslaved people kept or developed their own traditions. Enslaved brides often wore red, a tradition color in parts of Africa. Jumping the broom was also often a significant part of the ceremony, done as a post-wedding bit of fun where the newly wedded couple jumped over a broom held aloft. Now, theories have abounded about jumping the broom originated in Africa and being reclaimed by slaves, but a more recent study of records have indicated that it was actually a European tradition largely imposed on enslaved couples by the slaveholder as another means of exerting control over their lives. Some post-emancipation ceremonies, however, continue to include the tradition, reclaiming it from the strictures of slavery.
1: fun part is the superstitions. Most people have probably heard of the colonial era tradition of letting an apple peel form the first letter of the name of Emmanuel Mary, made popular by the TV show Charmed. But some of these just get weird. Not to mention the fact that these superstitions were pretty much charms, something that didn't so much as skirt, but were flat-out witchcraft, albeit of an apparently acceptable type.
0: Placing a piece of wedding cake under your pillow was meant to bring dreams of your future spouse. But honestly, that just sounds messy.
1: Another apple-related superstition was to toss an apple-pip or seed into the fire. If the seed cracked, the gentleman in question did indeed love the lady.
0: Many other superstitions involved animals as harbingers of good or evil fate. Pigs in front of the wedding party, bad luck. Pigs behind the wedding party, good luck. Most animals were bad luck, but lambs, toads, and spiders were good luck in England.
1: In Germany, if a girl knocked on the chicken coop on Christmas Eve, she could learn if she was to marry or not. If a rooster made a sound, she would. If a hen did, she wouldn't. Also, if she threw her shoe over her shoulder at the door, the direction of the toe will indicate she'll marry. Toe pointed to the door is a yes, away is a no.
0: It was thought that if a girl walked silently backwards into the garden on midsummer in England, picked a rose, and kept that rose in a paper bag until Christmas, the man who asked for the rose as she wore it to church that day would be her husband.
1: If a girl lost a garter in the street in Germany, her suitor had been unfaithful.
0: In 19th century America, if a girl put a bucket of water in the barn to freeze on Christmas Eve, she could read the initials or name of her future husband in the ice on the morning. There are many more superstitions and traditions regarding court and marriage but we could be here all day if you choose to try any of the charms we've just discussed. We disclaim all responsibility for the outcome.
1: So we hope you have enjoyed Banjo Strings and Drinking courts. We bring you historical episodes twice a month. You can check out the Frontier Culture Museum online at FrontierMuseum.org, on Facebook and Instagram. You'll find background on all of the farms of the museum, information on upcoming events, and so much
0: more. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please consider visiting the website and clicking the donate button. Donations to the American Frontier Culture Foundation support programs like field trips, summer camp, and special events. We greatly appreciate it. See you next time.